Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Caleb Griffin, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas. We'll be discussing his article, Humanizing Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Florida Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Caleb, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Caleb, the last time I looked, the public equity markets in the United States were valued at around roughly $50 trillion. I think that's probably gone down in the last year or so with some of the gyrations in the market. But still, I'm sure it's a pretty healthy number, a pretty mind-boggling number in terms of the assets invested in public companies in the U.S. So with that huge asset class in mind, I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about who owns all that stock? How do they own it? And has perhaps the answer to that question changed over time? Absolutely. What the typical investor looks like has changed pretty significantly over time, both in terms of who these investors are and also the way in which they invest. First, there's been a very substantial increase in the percentage of American households that invest in stocks. Back in, say, the 1920s, stock holding was relatively uncommon. Just 10% of American households held any stock, while today, about 58% of households hold at least some stock. So over time, there's been a significant broadening of the shareholder base. Second, individuals today are much more likely to invest in stock indirectly through investment vehicles like mutual funds. In 1980, only about 6% of American households invested indirectly, whereas today, nearly half of households invest in equities indirectly through various investment funds. So in a couple different ways, there's been a significant transformation both in who is doing the investing and in how they're doing it. More broadly, I think we used to both invest and vote on a firm-specific basis. Now, most human investors invest categorically in that they primarily buy categories of stock rather than picking their favorite firms. For instance, they might invest in an index fund that gives them exposure to all large cap stocks or all small cap stocks. And they often do this with willful ignorance of firm-specific factors. So we're investing categorically, but we are struggling with whether and how to vote categorically and with what sort of voice these investors should have. As usual, the law is lagging a bit behind the financial world. The ascendance of passive, hyper-diversified investing has been apparent for a while, but until very recently, the question of how best to govern a hyper-diversified world has been, relative to the scale of the issue, dramatically under-theorized. And I think that human investors have a role to play there. I'd like to come back to how we deal with voting and governance in this world of diversified investors. But before we get there, if you could compare and contrast the human investors that your paper talks about as compared to the non-human investors that are out there too, perhaps they're diversified or perhaps they're uh, investing directly. Why are human investors so important in your calculus? What role do they play or not play in corporate governance? And what role do you expect they want to play in corporate governance? I borrow the term human investors from former Delaware Chief Justice Leo Strine, and I use it to refer to 
the ordinary people who own stock primarily as a way of saving for long-term expenses like retirement. These are the types of people that they do have some investments. They make most of their money from labor, from their jobs. And so I think that they have a shared set of concerns that line up really well with the concerns of society at large. They're concerned about the long-term health of their investments, but they are also concerned about keeping their jobs and about working conditions and about the health of the environment. Institutional investors are certainly important, but they're comparatively well-studied. Large institutional investors have been under a microscope for a while now. Human investors, on the other hand, have received much less attention. The assumption has been essentially they're apathetic, they just don't care about corporate governance, and even if they did, they're so uninformed, perhaps we wouldn't want them to participate. And so currently, they don't do much at all. I think that's a mistake. I think human investors have a unique and valuable perspective to bring to the table. Their apathy or non-participation in corporate governance is in many ways a byproduct of how we've designed the system and how we've really failed to bring them to the table in an accessible way. So you're open to the idea that perhaps what human investors want from companies might diverge from what non-human investors want and perhaps the interest of human investors in participating in corporate governance might diverge a little bit from what the expectations are, including among scholars. And this is a question that you delve into in the paper with an original survey of investors. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated the survey, what your research questions were going into conducting the survey, some of the key findings that it offers, and how those findings might either support or perhaps even uh, counter some of the expectations or assumptions we have about these human investors? We have this sort of archetype, this conception of a shareholder as somebody who is concerned more or less exclusively with financial returns. And that conception has been really influential in the world of corporate law and corporate legal scholarship. And so this project really started with the question of whether this is how human investors view themselves and the way they approach their investments. So I conducted a survey of about 1,600 investors in index funds, and I asked them whether they supported this all-encompassing focus on profit. And what I found was that much like in the rest of their lives, human beings balanced financial returns against lots of other factors. More than three quarters of respondents were willing to sacrifice profits in order to promote employee welfare or to benefit society or to protect the environment. And in each category, only a very small minority of about 2 or 3% reported that they were never willing to sacrifice profits. And I take that as evidence that our archetype differs in important ways from real-world human investors. Instead, investors appear to be far more pro-social than we have perhaps let ourselves believe. Did you find any demographic differences in the respondents to the survey? For example, we might have some expectation that millennial and Gen Z investors are more pro-social. They are often bandied about as being the folks who are pushing the ESG movement and are really motivating that movement. Are we finding some differences in demographic responses? Are older investors, for example, more likely to favor that shareholder value maximization archetype? Or are your respondents pretty similar across the board? There are some differences, but they're pretty small. And I was surprised by that as well. There is a lot of research suggesting that perhaps millennials are different in some ways. And that was to some extent reflected in my data. Millennial investors and younger investors more generally were a little bit more willing to sacrifice profits in a lot of these categories. Overall, however, investors were overwhelmingly willing to sacrifice some degree of profits. And the differences between 
older and younger investors were quite small. So that was something that I found to be surprising as well. Were there any other potential differences between demographic subsets for the differences based on educational level or men and women that you found? So this was a sample that was nationally representative based on age and gender. One of the things that I found was there were some differences based on income. And as you increased in income, there was less willingness to sacrifice profits to some extent. However, again, it was not a strong trend and there was still an overwhelming willingness to sacrifice some degree of profits for investors at all income levels. And there's been other research to suggest that very high net worth investors uh, behave more like our archetype of what a shelter is. And, and I think this research adds to the data that maybe smaller investors, human investors, conceptualize their role as an investor a little bit differently. The survey data support a countering of the archetype of the investor, at least for these human investors, these retail investors. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that might mean for how those human investors participate in corporate governance in the fundamental bargain between shareholders and directors in the corporate form, or how they might face some barriers to being able to participate in that corporate governance. So shareholders classically have the right to vote in annual meetings, and that's seen as one of the primary ways that they can shape corporate governance. And that is true of direct shareholders, but only 15% of Americans hold stock directly. As I talked about earlier, there's been this shift, and most human investors now own stock indirectly through mutual funds or other investment vehicles. So those investors who own stock indirectly, like those in index funds or ETFs, don't have the right to vote in these elections at all. Instead, the law grants that right to fund management. So human investors have very little voice in corporate governance, and it's instead been given to mutual fund management. So how do mutual funds make their voting decisions? Typically, voting control is in the hands of a small group called the stewardship team, which is a handful of mutual fund employees chosen without any input from investors. Now, theoretically, each stewardship team is supposed to vote in their investors' best interests, but that requirement is pretty toothless. To my knowledge, no vote has ever been held to violate the best interest standard. And there's no requirement that funds get any real input from their individual investors, and they don't do so voluntarily. So without any real mechanism to hear from their human investors, these funds are perhaps just ignoring the concerns of their human investors, or at best just guessing at what their human investors might want. Ultimately, I think it's fair to say that most human investors have effectively no voice in corporate governance. The kind of classical conception of a public company or one of the key features of a public company is that it's the separation of ownership and control. And you seem to be observing that in the contemporary public markets, at least, there's not only a separation of ownership and control, but there's also, in a real way, a separation of ownership and ownership. Your paper proposes some reforms to address this problem. Could you talk about what you'd like to see happen to address this problem of the separation of human investors from their ability to participate in in corporate governance due to the intermediated nature of their investments? So corporate governance at mutual funds currently takes place in a lot of stages. There's voting in firms' annual meetings. There's the submission of shareholder proposals, which help to set the voting agenda. And there are engagements or direct communications with management, which can be a behind-the-scenes way of influencing firms. And I propose reforms on each of these fronts. My first proposal focuses on voting. 
Right now, we theoretically say that mutual funds have to vote in their investors' best interests. But as I said earlier, the current standard is pretty meaningless. So I propose that the SEC adopt a revised best interest rule that explicitly requires funds to get investors' input in at least a big picture way to publish that input and then to vote in reasonable accord with that input. This first proposal is pass-through voting light. Funds would have a lot of discretion with respect to how they went about gathering input from their investors, and compared to a pure pass-through voting scenario, they would also retain a lot more discretion in how to act on that input. The goal is to hear from human investors, to have these really powerful corporate governance actors act on those views, and to hopefully bring more transparency and accountability to the proxy voting process. My second point focuses on shareholder proposals. Shareholders have increasingly used shareholder proposals to bring social and environmental concerns to management's attention. The largest asset managers, the big index fund families like Vanguard and BlackRock, have, to my knowledge, never brought a shareholder proposal. And that seems like a missed opportunity. In this area, I propose a rather simple innovation. Mutual funds should solicit investor input on shareholder proposal topics and then bring relevant proposals. Right now, you have to own shares directly to bring shareholder proposals, and there are some logistical hurdles in doing so that mean that human investors rarely bring proposals on their own. But I don't think that means human investors don't have concerns they might want to bring to management. So I propose that mutual funds give investors an easy way to flag topics that are important to them. And from there, the index fund employees will take over the work of investigating the topic, seeing if it's a good fit for a shareholder proposal, and then going through the mechanics of actually submitting the proposal. Finally, my third proposal has to do with engagements. The paper argues that if human investors are unable to voice their concerns to management, but their more powerful counterparts can, management will have a greater understanding of powerful corporate and financial actors' concerns relative to those of human investors. To the extent that major players are able to privately pressure firms to act in areas where there perhaps isn't majority shareholder support, they're able to extract idiosyncratic benefits from the corporation. Now, it's quite difficult to judge the merits of any particular engagement. So in the paper, I use the analogy of strike suits. Just like in shareholder litigation, where there's a mix of meritorious suits and nuisance or strike suits, there's also likely to be a mix of beneficial advocacy on the one hand, and on the other, engagements that are designed to extract private gains. Now, funds generally withhold the substance of their engagements from the public, including their investors. I argue that this is acceptable if their investors, in fact, want them to withhold this information. However, my data suggests that investors strongly support increased transparency for engagements. In my sample, just 22% of human investors believed that engagements should remain private, and more than three quarters preferred to disclose the contents of these engagements to either the investors themselves or to the broader public. So my final proposal would require mutual funds to publish records of all communications with firm management and make those records available to investors. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and readers of the paper to have from the article? Ultimately, the paper is meant to cause us to question some of our basic assumptions. What does a typical shareholder look like? What do actual human shareholders want? Personally, this project caused me to question a lot of my own assumptions about who investors were and what they wanted. Shareholders are also workers, they're members of communities, and they depend on the health of both the economy and the environment. So it makes sense that they care about more than just profits. Additionally, my paper argues that we already have a lot of the key pieces in place to get human investors involved in corporate governance. 
We've already got human investors concentrated in mutual funds, and these funds already have enormous influence over firm management. I think the missing ingredient is making mutual funds more accountable to their human investors. And I think enhancing that responsiveness, transparency, and accountability could generate some very positive effects. Our guest today has been Caleb Griffin, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas. We've discussed his article, Humanizing Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Florida Law. I'll link to the article in the show notes of the episode. Caleb, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.